Christ is not the only one who needed to die. He died to provide salvation, something you and I could never do. But then he was raised again from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and there he is forevermore. So too, every true believer in Christ needs to die as well in order to live the life that Christ wants us to have. We've been considering thinking biblically about who we are in Christ. And in our previous weeks, we have considered collectively the universal church and the local church. And us as part of the local church, who we are in Christ. We saw that we were part of his building, not just any building, but a temple, a holy temple inhabited by the presence of God, and that we were priests in that temple, Christ Jesus himself being the great high priest. We saw that we were part of his body, not an organization, a living organism of which Christ was the head, giving direction by his spirit through his word. We saw that we were part of his bride, Christ Jesus himself being the bridegroom, And we rejoice that one day he will come for his bride, snatch us up to be with himself, and we will dwell with him eternally. Beginning today, though, and Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, this coming Sunday, our brother Gilson will be giving a Thanksgiving message. But today we're going to begin to look at who we are in Christ individually. It'll just take two messages to do that. It's not going to be exhaustive, the entire New Testament, but we're going to look at three key things about who we are in Christ individually. And then, Lord willing, we're going to look at what we have in Christ. Now, my wife suggested this to me a while back to think about this, And I thought about it. I even typed it up as a possible message to do. And then our brother Roy Springer suggested it. Didn't know Colette had suggested it. He suggested it not once but twice. So what do we have here? We have a verily, verily, verily. I better listen to this. So we're going to have, when my wife and Roy both are speaking stereo in my ears, we got to do this. We're going to look at what we have in Christ. And I've already thought about that and, and I think it's going to be such a blessing when you realize all that Christ, when he bled and died, bought for us, bought by him at such a cost. Today, let's begin and look at the first thing we are individually in Christ. And the first one's a shocker. We are dead yet alive. I bet you never thought that you would see those words up there, that this would be who we are individually in Christ. We are dead, yet we live. And then, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at the fact that we are a new creature in Christ and that we are God's workmanship in Christ. So let's take a look at the fact that individually, in Christ, we are dead, yet alive. 
So how, first of all, we are not made alive in Christ. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh, no person, no individual will be justified. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, what he did on the cross when he bore the sins of the world in his body, when he shed his blood and died, if you are trying to be just before God, being declared righteous, being considered innocent before a holy God, being considered worthy of spending eternity with God in Christ, if you are trusting in your works, your good deeds, the works of the law, the works of God's moral law, his moral requirements, trying to keep all of them, if you are trusting in your prayers, in your giving to the church, in your church attendance, if you are trusting in anything that you are attempting to do, know this, you are not going to be justified by those works, by those deeds. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, He's, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is no boasting before God because we cannot earn our salvation. It's a gift that is given to us. You know, if God asked us to do one thing, just one thing for salvation, every one of us would fail. If there were a hundred ways to, of salvation, we'd want a hundred and one because we would fail all hundred. We would never be perfectly faithful to anything our entire lives. So God provided that salvation. We are not justified by anything but faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Justified is being declared righteous, being declared innocent. It's the jury coming back with a verdict and saying, not guilty on all charges. You are a free person. You're a free man, a free woman. Because of Christ, you will never be bound over for eternity in judgment, paying the penalty for your sins if you have truly believed, trusted in, placed all your faith in what Jesus Christ himself bought at such a cost on the cross. We are justified by faith, by trust in what he did, not in anything that we do. We are made alive by faith in him. We must die first in order to live. Christ must die before he could be resurrected. You can't be resurrected without a death. Resurrection means there had to be a death. We also must die in order to live. Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ hung on that cross, it was as if Paul the apostle were nailed there as well. All his sins 
were nailed to the cross with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And he says, it is no longer I who live. Crucifixion was not a picnic. It was a method of death. It was being put to death. No one who was crucified came down from that cross alive. You hung there until you died. He says, I have been crucified. I have been put to death with Christ. Isn't that, that's amazing. He didn't have to literally die. You and I don't have to literally die on the cross. Christ did that for us. And then he says, it's no longer I who live. Look, he's alive writing these words. But he says, I'm not the one who's really living any longer. I'm not living my own life. So then what is he living? It's Christ who lived in him. It's Christ who lives in us. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Think about that for a moment. Right now, as you sit in your chairs, Christ is living in each and every one of you who have trusted in him for salvation. When you go home today to your own homes, Christ is living in you. Think about that. You know, I remember when I, when I, when I was first saved, I, I remember the elders of the church telling us, always live righteously. Always live in a way that would please the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want him coming for you when you're engaged in sin. Not because you'd lose your salvation if you truly had salvation. Because of the embarrassment of it. Think about this. We don't have to wait until he comes for us. He's living in us. He's there right now. He's there right now when we go home, when we sit here, when we go on the internet, when we turn on the television, when we stream a movie, when we engage in some pastime or activity. He's there. We don't have to wait. He sees it all. He knows it all. How then ought we to live and behave since Christ is living in us? He's there all the time. It's his life that should be lived out. It's not our life any longer. Paul says, Christ lives in me and the life. He doesn't say, and my life. It's not his life any longer. And the life which I now live in the flesh. It's not his life. Even though he's living it, it's a life that belongs to someone else. It's a life that should look like someone else's life. It should look like Christ's life. It's a life of faith. The life that he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith, by trust in the Son of God. Every day of our life, this is how we ought to live, by faith in Christ, trust in Christ, that he knows what is best for us each day of our life. No matter what comes into your life, any day, 
Christ will hold you fast. He will not let your soul be lost. It doesn't matter what trial, what circumstances come in. Trust in him. Live by faith. Live by trust in Jesus Christ that he knows what is best in each moment of our life. Why is our life not our own? Why didn't Paul say my life but the life? He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me. He displayed that love on the cross, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Look, this is so obvious. We all know this. You've, you've heard, perhaps it's even happened to you, or perhaps you saved someone's life. But you've heard it said, oh, he or she saved my life. I owe them my life. I owe them my life because they saved mine. We know this. We've heard this phrase, I owe him or her my life. Christ bled and died. He laid down his life so that we might live. We owe him our life. He loved us. He loved Paul, and he gave himself up for Paul. He gave himself up for you, for every single one of you who have trusted in him for salvation. Look, it's true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, but he also loved you individually. Think about that. He didn't just die for the world, a world of no faces. He saw your face when he hung on the cross. He loved you and laid down his life for you. How could you not have a great sense of self-worth and value if Christ was going to do that for you? He values you because of what he wants to do in you and through you to have his life reproduced in you as a testimony to the world. Now, our brother Gilson read two passages. One of them was very long. It was from Colossians 3. But there's a connection between Galatians 2.20 and Colossians 3. And it's in verse 3. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's the connection. The dying but living. In Christ, we are dead yet alive. Let's see what Colossians has to say about this life of Christ that is to be lived out. Paul references it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life that I now live, what is that life supposed to look like? We find that out, what it's supposed to look like, in Colossians chapter 3. Generally, how do we go about living this new life? If we're to cite one principle 
that will help us, enable us to live this new life, to have the life of Christ reproduced and put on display for others to see, for the world to see. He tells us, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on the things above. While you and I are living in this earth, he wants us to think heavenly thoughts. He wants us to have our minds set in the heavenlies, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When our mind is in the heavenlies, we are looking down and beholding life's circumstances. From God's perspective, we are viewing things the way God views them. We are thinking biblically. In other words, so set our minds on the things above, not just on our earthly circumstances, both good and bad. Christ in the Sermon on the Mount talked about uh, uh, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of uh, riches. I'm sorry, in, in Matthew 13, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The bad and the good. Don't just focus on those. In all circumstances, set our minds on the things above. This is generally how we will be able to live the new life, how Christ's life will be able to be reproduced in us, how we will think biblically about all things by setting our mind on the things above. Practically, how do we die? How do we die? Paul says this, therefore consider, reckon, have your mind set Think in this way. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He tells them, consider ourselves to be dead. We died to these things, to immorality, to impurity, impure thoughts, to passion to evil desires, and even to greed, which amounts to idolatry. That's what greed is. Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God and money. It's one or the other. No one can serve two masters, he said. You will hate the one and love the other, or you will cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is an idol. We die by considering ourselves to be dead to these sins. Some of them gross sins that he listed here. But then, why should we die to these things? To immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Why should we die to these things? For because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And he says, this is the way you used to live. And in them, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. God is going to judge those sins and those who practice those sins. Those for whom those sins characterize their life, the fruit of their life, demonstrating that they've never really had faith in Christ at all. 
the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. This is why we should die. God, God's not out to be a celestial killjoy, a, a cosmic killjoy out to ruin all our fun. He's going to judge these sins. And so he tells us, consider ourselves to be dead to these things. We should die even to common, more common sins. I didn't want to say uh, little sins or little things. We should die to more common things. But now you also put them all aside, not just some, but all. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, brethren, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, telling lies about another person, abusive speech. We're, we're to consider ourselves to be dead to these. We are to put these aside, cast these aside. The idea behind putting aside, that, that word could be used, the original Greek language that Paul wrote in, that word could be used of taking off your clothes at the end of the day taking them off and tossing them on the floor, just tossing them over in a corner. I think my wife had something to say to me about that when we were first married. Be that as it may, that's what it is. It, the idea, the word picture there of putting them aside is taking your clothes off in preparation for going to bed, for example. He says, do not lie to one another. Why? Because you've laid the old self aside. Like the dirty clothes, you laid it aside. You don't want to put that on tomorrow. You don't want to put it on again. Especially if you're a guy, you know what the clothes smell like. And if you've been working outside, you know how dirty they are. Those aren't going on tomorrow. And tell your wife, give me a Give me a hug. I'm going to work again. No, no, no. You laid them aside, the dirty clothes with its filth and stink. And that's the idea here. Anger shouldn't be part of the Christian life. Wrath, malice, planning to do someone evil, slander, telling lies about an another person, abusive speech. We should die to all things. Generally, those are, those are all the put-offs, the negatives, what should not be true. How about the positives now? Let's look at the positives. Generally, what does that look like? Basically, it should look like Christ. We should be living like Christ and have put on. This is a precise word that was used of a, a slave helping his master get dressed, putting on clothes in the morning. It's what you and I do every morning. We put on new clothes, clean clothes, and have put on a new self. This was done in the past when we became a Christian. But because we've done this doesn't mean that we don't have to keep on doing it. It is constantly being renewed, the new self, is constantly being renewed. And how is it being renewed? How? Each day, each moment, 
does the character of Jesus Christ come out in every situation, in every circumstance? It's being renewed to a true knowledge. A true knowledge. And that true knowledge accurately represents the image of the one who created him. It accurately represents the character of God and Christ. That is what God wants to produce in our life. That is a true knowledge. Anything that is not like the life Jesus Christ himself would live on this earth is not part of the new man. It's not what's being renewed. Anything that is false is not part of Christ's image. He is the way, the truth, the source of all truth. Falsehood doesn't find its way back to Christ. It finds its way back to the devil. He abode not in the truth, Christ said, because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus Christ told some Jews. We should generally live like Christ. But more specifically, more practically, what does that look like? So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on, put on. Again, clothing language. Put on. You know, when you're picking, oh, what what color shirt do I want to wear today? Or pants or dress or whatever. What shoes should I wear? You're trying to select and pick what you should put on for that day. He says, put on a heart. See, it's a true knowledge. It begins with the mind. But the Christian life doesn't stay here. It's not just book learning. An understanding of the scriptures is to be lived out every day in each situation. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Who does that sound like? Compassion and kindness. Isn't that Christ leaving the glories of heaven? Who, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, the scriptures say. Isn't that compassion and kindness? The love of Christ caused him to go to the cross, to do the Father's will, and to provide salvation. For you here today. That's compassion and kindness. Humility. He said, come to me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek, humble of heart. He was humble and gentle. And you shall find rest unto your souls. Patience. (laughs) Isn't the patience of God, didn't it? Didn't it show itself Faithful, faithfully patient for how many years in your life and mine that he kept us safe even while we were rejecting him until we would come to the cross for salvation. Till we would respond to that gospel call and the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit and cry out to him, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That was patience. For me, it was 20 years that he was patient with me. Some of you, it may have been less. Some of you, it may have been more. But that's the patience, the forbearance, the long-suffering of God. How do we put on Christ's heart, that heart of compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What does that look like? If you really have that compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, if the Holy Spirit has produced those aspects of the character of Christ in you, if you've really put those on, what is it going to look like? You will bear with one another and forgive one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. It's bearing with one another, whether it be in the marriage relationship or within the family or on the job or in the neighborhood, the extended family, whether it be in the local church, bearing with one another. Look, none of us are perfect. All of us make mistakes, and we even all sin, and sometimes we offend one another. Bearing with one another. God bears with us, doesn't he? Every day, he bears, he puts up with us. His standard is absolute perfect holiness. And yet, as often as we let him down, and we don't do what we ought, and we do what we ought not, his rod doesn't fall every time. He's patient and forbearing. He bears with us, and he's forgiving. You know, I've run into Christians in different places, and well, they, they haven't said this to me. I've heard them say this to other people. You offended me. You owe me an apology. You sinned against me. You need to ask my forgiveness. And, and, and they're in the other person's face pointing that out. You know what it says in Proverbs 19? It's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Not every single little thing needs to be pointed out to the other person and an apology demanded. It's bearing with that person, with their shortcomings, their character flaws, with the unsanctified parts of them, the unpolished parts. Pray more for them and for yourself as well rather than pointing these things out, forgiving one another. You know, we've heard that saying, oh, look at that cute little baby. You know, she has her mother's eyes, or he has his father's eyes. Well, spiritually speaking, you want to know what God's eyes look like? Forgiveness. Jesus Christ said, you are to forgive others. Your father will forgive you if you forgive others. But if you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. He said that when he taught the disciples how to pray. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he would go on to say, if you do not forgive men for their trespasses, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Why? Because you don't have your Father's eyes. He's not really your Father. A forgiving spirit of another's shortcomings and sins is the characteristic of a child of God. Why? Because it's a characteristic of the father of that child. Now, I remember when my daughter was five years old, uh, back in our home in Connecticut, we had a sectional. 
It filled our little living room. It was shaped like an L. And I was at one end of the long part, and it, it would recline. And I'm reading the Bible. And I have a light on at the end table, and she's playing at the other end of the L. She's only five years old, tiny little thing. She stands up, and she runs across the L, jumps down to her, her knees, throws her arms around me, pulls herself up, and gives me a kiss and says, Daddy, I love you. And I turned and looked at her. And with the light in the room, one at one, at, one end of the L and one here, in the living room well lit, she looks me in the eye and I look at her and she says to me, Daddy, I can see myself in your eyes. She could see her reflection. Have you ever read the Old Testament and you've come across that phrase that Israel was the apple of God's eye? Most of the time in the Hebrew, you know what the Hebrew literally says? The Hebrew is Ba'at Kishon, the little the daughter of the eye. Exactly what my daughter saw in my eye, Israel was the apple of Yahweh's eye. You are the apple of God's eye, but you can only see that. How much he loves you if you're looking in his eye, if you're setting your mind on the things above, then you see that. His eye is always on us. There's an old hymn that says, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on us all the time. We can only see that and our reflection in his eye when we look at him. Let's gaze on the Father's eyes. Let's have the Father's eyes and have this forgiving spirit. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as, exactly as the Lord forgave, so also should you. And what is the goal of having Christ's heart? That heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience that bears with each other, that forgives each other. The goal, what is put on top, it's like the icing on the cake, is upon all these things put on love. Again, clothe yourself with love. That's what all these things are. If you were to describe them all in one word, it would be love. Love bears all things. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, love will forgive all things. That is the perfect bond of unity. What did Jesus Christ say in the upper room? He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And he would go on to tell them, by this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples because you've memorized the whole Bible. No, he didn't say that. Because you have love for one another. The love for one another bears all things and forgives. It's the perfect bond of unity. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, before he was betrayed, just before he was betrayed, 
he prayed over and over again that we may be one even as the Father and the Son are one. Specifically, how do we have unity? It's the peace of Christ. You can't have unity where there's turmoil. You can't have unity where there's disagreement, where there's a war of words. There is no unity there. It's only when there's peace, peace ruling in our hearts, that there can be unity. We were called in one body. He brings in the body analogy again here. We can't escape it. Who we are in Christ individually can never be divorced from who we are in Christ collectively as a local church. We will only have unity if the peace of Christ rules in our heart. Have you ever seen the ocean during a hurricane? I remember going down uh, to the beach back in Connecticut during a hurricane and watching the waves. They were taller than me. They were taller than my six-foot friends. It was incredible, the size of the waves, as those hurricane winds, 80-plus miles an hour, were roaring. On the contrary, that same area... Early in the morning, and usually when the sun would go down, even though it's the ocean, it was almost like perfectly calm. Just little ripples, and then some waves up on the, up on the shore. But it was calm. It was tranquil. It was peaceful. Nothing like the day before during that hurricane. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. I'm going to see something here. In this verse, the next verse, and after that, the next one after that, three times, a verily, 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 a truly, 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 three times, thankful and thanks is going to be mentioned. They function like bookends. They function like the slices of bread in a sandwich. And you're going to see what's in the middle. He's going to bring us back to almost where he started back in verse 2. Thankfulness is a characteristic of peace. When we're in turmoil, and it's and turmoil, and anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech is what's ruling in our hearts, there's not a whole lot of thankfulness and a whole lot of thanksgiving, is there? When was the last time you ever thanked God when you were angry and abusive speech was coming out of your mouth? It doesn't happen. But when the peace of Christ is ruling, there's thankfulness. You can gauge how thankful you are, how much the peace of Christ is ruling in your hearts by how thankful you are. How do we let peace rule in our hearts? He brings us back to the word of God. Let the word of Christ, this is not the gospel, this is the written word he's talking about here. The word of Christ richly dwell within you. Not just dwell, but richly dwell. Do you want peace ruling in your heart? Do you want a thankful spirit 
that doesn't grumble and complain, where thankfulness is what characterizes you and I more than grumbling. That's only going to happen when the word of Christ richly dwells within us. I know there, there might be somebody thinking, uh, you know, Paul, you're always talking about God's word. You're, you know, no, Well, I can't help it. It's right there in the scriptures. God talked about it and how important it was. I, I'm not making this up. I had a brother tell me recently, you got to stop focusing on God's word. It's all about feelings. The Christian life is about feelings is what he told me. Because that's the way he felt. It's sort of circular reasoning there. But yet God brings out again and again and again a true knowledge, not a true feeling, a true knowledge. And we find that in God's word. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing, exhorting, counseling one another. You could translate that word admonishing as admonishing, but that sounds strong. That sounds harsh. So if that's the way it comes across to you, a better way and a legitimate way to translate that is counsel one another. With all wisdom, teaching and counseling one another, exhorting one another. That's what's behind that word admonishing. And it's done in wisdom. Wisdom that's based not on our own wisdom, but on the word of Christ richly dwelling within us. That's where that wisdom comes from, from God's word. And he says, teaching and admonishing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. See, he's not talking literally here. He's not talking about singing to one another. Trust me, if I sang to you, that would not be an encouragement. It'd be chastisement. It'd be cruel and unusual punishment. Ask my wife. I sing around the house. It's figurative there. Our speech ought to be like psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Didn't you love that music this morning? When we teach and we admonish, it should be like that. When we talk to one another and correct one another or give advice to one another or counsel one another, it should be like we're singing to them, like we're singing a love song to them. And not only should it be outward, but inward, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, thankfulness will only come out of our lips if it's already living in our heart. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus Christ taught. You know, when I was in seminary, one of, my, one of the first classes you had to take was a class on how to correctly interpret Scripture. And the first step in interpreting Scripture, before you ever get to interpretation, it's observation. What do the, does the text of Scripture say? What do the words say? Observe that first. So the professor gave us an assignment. He gave us several verses from the New Testament, from Romans. 
And he said, I want you to, this was on Tuesday, I, wa I want you to go home and make 25 observations about those couple of verses. And I remember on Thursday when class met again before class, some of the students talking, oh, you know, the first 20 were easy, or the first 23 were easy. I really had a struggle to get out the last couple of them. Well, we had to turn in our papers, and the professor comes in, and, and he looks through all the papers. And he says, wow, you men did a great job. I like a lot of those observations. And he went on and he taught the class. And two hours later, he says, and I'm going to give you your homework for next Tuesday. He says, I want you to look at the same two verses he quoted. Find 25 new things. Observe 25 more. Now, at least we had more time, Thursday to the next. That was 50 observations. There weren't 50 words in those verses. What does all this have to do with thankfulness? Suppose I were to ask you, suppose I were to challenge you. Monday, I want you near the end of the day or throughout the day, write down 10 things that you're thankful for, that the Lord has done for you on Monday. 10 of them. And then on Tuesday, I want you to write 10 things that the Lord has done for you on Tuesday. Some of them might be the same as Monday. Maybe five the same, five new ones, because Tuesday's a different day. I don't know what the sovereign Lord has planned for your Monday and Tuesday. On Wednesday, I want you to write 10 more, but none of them can be what you wrote on Monday and Tuesday. You think you could do it? I wonder if I could do it. We have so much to be thankful for in Jesus Christ. Why? We can't thank him for a hundred things every day. Amazes me. Maybe you can. Maybe you ought to be up here preaching. I don't know if I could. A hundred things. And then a hundred new things the next day. Could we do it? Has he done that much for us? I, I think he has. We just don't see it. Let's cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Live Christ's life by always keeping him in view. How can we do all this? It's whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever we do, not just some things, Everything, whatever it is, in word or in deed, you do it for him. You don't do it for yourself. You don't do it for the church. You don't primarily do it for another person. You do it first and foremost for him, to be pleasing to him. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And live Christ's life out. And here's the third time. By always giving thanks. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all giving thanks through him to God the Father. Three times, in three verses, Paul tells us to be thankful and to give thanks and to, and to let that characterize us. 
I think God is trying to get something across to, to us, don't you think? Three times in three verses. So in conclusion, what are you thinking today? Are you thinking biblically about who you are in Christ? Dead to your old way of life, but alive to a new way of life? We're going to see, Lord willing, in a couple weeks that we are a new creature and that we are his workmanship. But until then, let's examine ourselves. Let me ask you a couple questions. Today, will you begin to see yourself as dead to your old way of life? What is there in your life right now that characterized you before you were saved? What is it? Is Is there anything? Seek the Lord's face, pray to him, ask him to reveal that to you. And then consider yourself to be dead to whatever he shows you. Today, will you begin to live like Christ himself lived, with loving and forgiving others, the way he loved, the way he forgave? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the power of your word. Oh, Lord. We, we confess to you that we are not always thankful. And we know your peace is not ruling because thankfulness is not what erupts from our lips, from our mouth. It's not there in our heart and our thoughts. How little we thank you when we have so much to be thankful for. Oh, Lord, for your name's sake, Would you help us to put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Help us to bear with one another. Help us to have a forgiving spirit like you do. We ask all this for your glory and your name's sake. Amen.